0: who is to come into the world. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she also fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, "'See how he loved him.' But some of them said, "'Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man "'have kept this man from dying?' Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. "'Take away the stone,' he said. "'But Lord,' said Martha, the sister of the dead man, "'by this time there is a bad odor, "'for he has been in there four days.' His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this amazing story of a man who was long dead, that gets up from the grave. Father, certainly many of us here have trouble believing that, that this really took place, that you can really resurrect one's human body. But Father, this is at the very center of the hope of Christianity, that one day all will be raised again, that those that are yours will be resurrected to eternal life forever. Lord, let us understand this, let us believe that this morning, and let it change the way that we go about life in the here and now. Father, bless the reading of your word and the preaching and the hearing of your word. And we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. In 2002, shortly after the events of 9-11 and as New York City was um, preparing to build a memorial, was thinking about the architecture of the memorial. What should be memorialized? What should be there in the place that the, tw- the towers had once stood? And an editorial uh, commentator Jack Hitt wrote a piece in New York Magazine of what it means to memorialize someone, what it means to memorialize an event, and how public memorials had changed their shape and their content over the course of the American experience. He said that for centuries in America... That we as a society were not content to simply memorialize the events, the circumstances, the details of someone's death or of a tragedy. But there, as we memorialize people, it was different because there was a general hopefulness about the future. And a general idea of an afterlife that informed the, the architecture, that informed what was inscribed in these memorials. Memorials and eulogies in this context conveyed a hopefulness about the future. It it pointed people forward from the point of that person's death or a tragedy. So if you think about it, if you visited the Lincoln Memorial and you walk into this amazing piece of architecture, and there's Lincoln sitting there in great grandeur. And what does he have? What's talked about? What's focused upon in that memorial? It's not the events of Ford's Theater, but it's the Gettysburg Address. It's his second inaugural address, that brilliant piece of rhetoric. But then compare that with JFK. There is the eternal flame, but the, the most prominent place to go and ta- to to memorialize JFK is where Dealey Plaza where you can vividly reenact the events. You can hear the theories. You can see the bullet line of sight of where the bullet was supposedly shot. You go to and walk on the grassy knoll. You become intimate with the details, not of the life, not of his significance, but of his death, of his death. You can watch the Zapruder film and all of the things and the theories surrounding JFK's death. We all know Lincoln's birthday, we celebrate Lincoln's birthday, but who knows when JFK was born? Very few people, but we all know, most of us know, when JFK was shot. We know the day of his death. And what this editorial commentator was saying is that in the hundred years intervening between when Lincoln died and when JFK died, that our whole ideas of what happens at death, our whole idea of can we be hopeful about the future... Are the events that seem significant in this life... ...are they actually significant... ...or is this just a long, meaningless trail... ...of circumstances and details? That in that time we had come become accustomed with the idea... ...that we, cannot, we can control and conquer a lot of things... ...but we cannot control and conquer death. It stares us in the face. It gives, makes us anxious about life. We have this great anxiety about death. And instead of moving beyond death... We fixate upon it. We're fascinated with the details, with the circumstances surrounding important events like 9-11 and people's death. As Americans, it has become difficult in that hundred years to have a hopefulness about someone's life, a hopefulness about what happens after life. And because of that, the way that we memorialize, the way that we eulogize people has begun to take a different shape, a different form. We can't conquer and control death, and it's made us anxious. It's given us a restlessness in our spirit, a restlessness in our larger society. Now in this passage, we see resurrection, we see life, we see beauty, we see new life, but we also see what? Death that is looming over every part of this. Lazarus' death, and then the coming death that Jesus, of Jesus that is alluded to. And Mary and Martha have this same anxiety, this same weird feeling about death, this this fear of death. Can even Jesus, can the Messiah who has come, can even he conquer death? Is he even powerless, uh, powerless to conquer death? Can he make sense of my brother Lazarus' death? And Jesus says, I have overcome, I am the resurrection. We're going to look at three things about Jesus that this passage tells us. We're going to look at the truth of Jesus, and the tears of Jesus, and then the path of Jesus. And my apologies to Steve. I couldn't come up with an alliteration. I tried trail, but, you know, it didn't quite work. So truth, tears, and path this morning. Let's look at first at truth, the truth of Jesus. Jesus gets word that his dear friend Lazarus is sick and dying. Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, two of his closest friends, two of his closest followers. They've spent just hours and days and months with Jesus, and they have developed this intimacy. A great love has existed between this family and Jesus. He is not only their teacher and their rabbi, but he's also their friend. And so he hears that Lazarus is dying. He gets word, and what does he do? He waits and he waits. For two days, he waits. What do you do when you hear that someone close to you is in the hospital and near death? You drop everything, right? You run. You get to the hospital. You get to their bedside. You figure out, how can I bring comfort in this moment? I want to see them. If they're going to die, I want to be with them before they die. But Jesus waits. And it seems oddly in conflict with John's comment from the Jews that this was someone that Jesus loved deeply. But in in verse 4 that we didn't read, um, Jesus says that this whole episode is meant to bring glory to God, to testify to Jesus as the Son of God. There's something larger going on here. There's an intentionality to this waiting that we don't yet understand. But after two days, he announces to his disciples that he is indeed going to Bethany in Judea, where previously he had been targeted for assassination. They had tried to stone him, but he goes back to be with his family and with his friend. And when he arrives, Martha goes out to meet him. And in her grief, she rebukes him. She says, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. You're the Messiah. You're the rabbi. You're the one that uh, was to come. Certainly you knew what was happening, certainly knew that Lazarus, my brother, your friend, was close to death. If you had been here, he would have lived. And Jesus' response is that, Martha, your brother will rise. I know, I know. He will rise one day in the resurrection. And it, at first glance, it seems like what Jesus is telling her, it sounds like just theological sentimentality, right? Something that we would say just kind of offhanded to someone who is struggling, who is, is grief-stricken, that if they're a Christian, quote Romans 8, all things work together for the glory of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And Yes, that's true, but sometimes it can seem so trite. And that's almost what this seems to to be happening here, that she is not comforted. I know he will rise again one day in the resurrection, but Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died at all. Would you enter into my grief, enter into my pain? Martha is responding with the, the Sunday school answer. I know the truth, I know the future, but she's missing the immediacy of Jesus' point. Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection. Not one day, not I can provide the resurrection, not that I point to the resurrection, but I am. I am the one that brings the resurrection. I am the one that embodies the resurrection. I am the one that embodies the whole hope for resurrection from the very beginning. So hearing this, hearing that he is the resurrection. What, is, what does Martha do? Okay, Jesus, do your thing. Do you need anything? you need any in- instruments implements? Should I just stand back and, and, and wait? Should I take you to the tomb? You know, if you're the resurrection, let's get after it. Let's go to the tomb so you can take care, of, take care of business. No, she doesn't do this at all. And it seems quite strange upon hearing that he's the Lord of the resurrection. I am. She doesn't ask him to raise Lazarus. Why is this? Why does she not ask? This New York Magazine article that I referenced a minute ago is indicating death is this great mystery. It's this great villain. It's, you cannot defend yourself against it. It's the great conqueror. And the Bible talks about death. It talks about physical death as a response, as a result of spiritual death. And Martha, as a student of Jesus, would certainly know the Old Testament narrative. She would know that physical death entered into the world based upon spiritual death. When humanity said, God, I don't need you. I'm going to live my own way. And at that moment, the curse enters into humanity. At that moment, physical death. At that moment, the world begins to spiral into disarray. And she knows that the catastrophe of pain and suffering that enters into the world because of that. She's witnessed it, certainly not just presently with her brother Lazarus, but she's witnessed the pain and suffering that has come as a result of spiritual death. She knew one day, she was convinced, of course, one day that God may be able to resurrect us spiritually. But my brother is lying in the tomb, four days dead. Could even Jesus... Do, do that. Jesus is a, a great intermediary, a great teacher, a great prophet. But could he conquer death? Could he physically resurrect my brother? She knew the resurrection was not something that you could just conjure up, that you could just ask for. How presumptive that that would be, that Jesus, this man, could unravel the whole pain and suffering, the whole story of the brokenness of the world, that he, by his voice, could change that physically and presently. She had seen Jesus come into the world with truth, but she hadn't yet seen the tears that would surround his crucifixion and the subsequent joy of his resurrection. He was a powerful teacher, but one who could conquer death So let's look at tears. Perhaps Martha's frustrated. She runs back in the part of the passage I didn't read for you. She runs to get Mary because Jesus has asked for Mary. The teacher is here and is asking for you. And Mary says the exact same thing that Martha had said. It's a question in the form of a statement. Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. We get the same question, but we get a very different response. In verse 33, it says, He was deeply moved and troubled. And in the underlying Greek, it's more than what comes out in our English. It means rage, anger, fury. He was furious. He was deeply moved and angry about what was going on. And then in verse 38, at the tomb, he was incensed, he was enraged over Lazarus' death. And then in 35, Jesus wept. Jesus, the I am, the resurrection, burst into tears over this state of affairs. This has got to be one of the most profound and utterly honest parts of the whole gospel narrative. Because who would make that up? If you were fabricating this story that Jesus is actually who he says he was, you would not say this. You wouldn't say he burst into tears. It conveys a almost helplessness, a a meekness, a littleness, a tenderness of Jesus. Very profound and utterly honest that I am. That the God of the universe burst into tears. What a picture. But what's he angry at? Is he angry at Mary and Martha's questions? Is he angry at being late? No, he's angry at death itself. He's angry at pain. He's angry and enraged at loss, at suffering. It's as if these two great enemies have met head on on the battlefield... And they're they're enraged at one another. Death is trying to overcome everyone. And Jesus takes it head on and he is enraged and he's angry and he's furious at death, at loss, at everything that's broken in the world. And not only is he angry at that, but he weeps, he cries for those who are victims of it. When you lose something, when something bad happens to you, you're sad, you're sorrowful, you're you're grief-stricken. But if something bad happens to someone you love, you're angry. You're angry at the perpetrator that hurt that person. You're angry at the disease that is taking their health away. You are angry. You're furious that this is happening because you want to defend them. You want to protect them because you love them. In Isaiah 53... It says of the Messiah who had come, He has borne our griefs and He has carried our sorrows. They become His. He takes on our sorrows as His own. He takes on our grief as His own. And it's as if it's happening to Him. And He's angry because this is happening to His loved ones. His angry love is incensed at death itself, at the thief of pain and suffering. Now notice what this says about Jesus. Two things very quickly. Whatever his answer is of why pain and evil are in the world. We don't get at this necessarily directly here in this passage. But whatever the larger answer is of why pain and suffering. How does this fit into bringing glory to the, to the Father and testifying to the Son. Whatever his answer is, it is not that he doesn't care. It is not that he is callous. It is not that he is unaware it's not that he doesn't care. Our suffering enrages him. He carries our grief. He weeps over the sin and brokenness of the world. It's not that he doesn't care. And then secondly, maybe, maybe we're not satisfied with the answer. We've heard the arguments about why pain and suffering are in the world. Maybe we're not satisfied. But we can't say that his response is just like all the other options. It's just like all the other religions. Other religions are indeed upset with evil. And indeed they have a solution to provide. But none in comparison. Their truth stands somewhat far off by comparison to Jesus. Jesus doesn't stand far off with just prophecy, with just truth, with just teaching, with just proclamation. He comes near. He was born into the pain, into the suffering, in order To conquer it, he enters into the human story not simply with truth, but also with tears. When Martha came, he pointed her towards truth. I am the resurrection and the life. But when Mary comes to him, he gives her tears. He cries with her. Any good counselor, any good friend, for that matter, knows that if you're hurting, you need both. You need both, you need truth eventually. But you need tears. You need compassion. And you can't have tears without truth. Unless there's something that's being violated. Unless there's some norm that's being broken. Unless there's some larger rule about how the world should be. Unless there's something gone wrong that is truth. How can you have tears? There's nothing to cry about. It's just the way that the world is. But you also can't have truth without tears. Pronouncements, no matter how true they may, not, they may be won't fully be received without love. Truth is what's wrong and what's the solution. And it goes hand in hand with tears, with the presence, with listening, with touch, with emotion, with compassion, with empathy. Proclamation and empathy and compassion, they go hand in hand. And that's what Jesus does as the perfect counselor... He brings truth as well as tears. Friends of In Town, those that are here, in our relationships, in our partnerships with other ministries downtown, in our cooperation with other churches, if we are to model Jesus in these relationships, we cannot, we will not be content just to make pronouncements, just to illuminate the truth, just to point to what is right and what Jesus said, as valuable and as necessary as that is. We have to enter into the brokenness around us. We have to touch people. We have to get our clothes dirty. We have to encounter the brokenness of the world if there's going to be a a listening to the truth. We point people to Jesus as the truth, but we have to give them tears because of the injustice and the suffering that they are undergoing, and simply because that's how Jesus does it. That's how Jesus did ministry, is he gave truth. I am the resurrection. I am the life. But he gave tears. He gave compassion. He gave empathy. He walked side by side with people. Maybe this will step on a few toes, but Jesus is not a conservative and judgmental, nor was he simply a bleeding heart liberal. He had truth and tears. He was divine and human. In more conservative context you see the focus is more upon the divinity more upon propositional truth about who Jesus was and how he can be both divine and human at the same time. In more progressive or liberal context the focus is more upon his humanity, the work that he did, the care for the poor that he had. One may be doctrinally sound but emotively and empathetically and actually practically weak and that needs to be avoided. And the other may be empathetically, emotively strong, but doctrinally weak. And that needs to be avoided. Jesus is not liberal or conservative. He's, he is a third way. He's different from both. He has truth and tears. He has doctrine that is strong and points to something definitive. But he walks into people's pain. He walks into their fear, their anxiety, and says, let me carry your burdens for you. Friends, we can't do one or the other. We have to do both. We have to be empathetic and we have to believe that this is the truth. Because Jesus claims it is. Jesus is neither and both. He's emotively and doctrinally deep. He's full of truth and he's full of tears. Now thirdly and finally, let's look quickly at the path. We've seen the truth of Jesus, the tears of Jesus... Now let's look at the path of Jesus, because hovering over this passage is the disciples' initial warning to Jesus. That's the place, Jesus. Don't go there. They want to stone you there. Don't go there. And you have this foreboding sense in this passage, especially if you read from John 1 forward, that this is going to end very badly. That in order for Jesus to save Lazarus, he has to give up his own life. To resurrect his friend, he has to die you have this foreboding sense. And this is the narrative. This is the picture that John is painting. Because for ten chapters he's been telling us about the ministry and the life and the significance of Jesus. And then here at this passage it begins to turn. And you see the conflict. You see him walking towards his own destruction. Here in 11 the path begins to swerve. When the religious leaders witness this resurrection of Lazarus. What do they do? Do they bow? Do they worship? Do they praise? Wow, look what just happened. Of course, this guy is for real. Some of them do. But it says others went to, and we didn't read this part, in verse 45 they go to the chief priests and complain and instigate a plot to kill him. Those that witness Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead plot to kill him. It makes no sense. If you saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and he's claiming, I am the resurrection, would there not be some willingness to connect those two and say, okay, I believe you've raised a dead man. But instead, they plot to kill them because the problem with the path is not proof. The problem with the path is not proof. What more proof do you need than to see someone raise a dead man? The problem with the path is not proof, but it is with the path itself. In verse 16, the disciples say, Let us go with him to Bethany. For what? That we may die with him. Let us go with him that we may die with him. To be eulogized at a funeral, to have a memorial in the National Mall, you have to do what? You have to die and to be resurrected. With Jesus, you have to die. You have to die. You have to die to the very thing that brought physical death into the world to begin with. And that is spiritual independence. That is spiritual arrogance. That is saying, God, I don't need you. I am fine on my own. I can chart my own course. I can take care of myself. You have to die to that in order to be resurrected and have real life, have true life. It looks like the path to life is us making our own way, making our own decisions, being independent of God. But that's the path to destruction. And it's the path that led our whole world into disarray to begin with. Instead, it is dying to that whole idea. It is surrendering once and for all to Jesus as the truth, as the resurrection, as the life. You see, Jesus doesn't just give truth. Here's what's wrong with you, and here's what you need to do to fix it. But he gives you tears. Here's what I'm willing to do for you. I'll do anything to set you free. I will give up my own life so that you can be resurrected. Truth and tears. I understand what you're going going through. Let me carry your burdens. Let me carry your sorrows. Burden me with your guilt and shame. And brokenness. What would it mean, friends? What would it mean if the king of the universe cried for you? What would it mean if Jesus the Messiah was exactly who he claimed to be and has tears when you have tears? When he has joy when you're joyful and he has sorrow when you're sorrowful? What would that mean? That's the question that Martha is struggling with. Jesus, I know this one day. But what does that do for me now in the here and now? It means, friends, what does it mean as we think about giving care to others? If the king of the universe cares for you and has walked into your world so that he can give up his life for you, what does that mean when someone comes to you and needs something? What does that mean when you walk out of here this morning and you meet someone on the side of the road that is smelly and stinky and dirty? What does the resurrection life look like in those circumstances? What does it mean to our care for ourselves? To our disappointment, to our, our loneliness, to our anxiety, to things that we lose, to people that we lose? Does the resurrection mean something when we say that Jesus, the resurrected one, was resurrected for you, that he cares for you, that he weeps for you? and that one day he will put an end to it all. It changes the way we deal with disappointment and loss. I have a friend who is in ministry, a good friend, and he had cancer when he was 10 years old, had cancer for three years, and then had to have his arm amputated as a 13-year-old. Imagine how difficult that is to go through. And he says that when he was in the hospital awaiting the surgery, he'd... Struggled with cancer for three years and he was about to lose his arm. And he says a pastor came into his room and said, Iron, one day Jesus will put all things right. One day you will be made whole because you will be resurrected. Friends, the resurrection story puts a completely different spin on things that we lose. Even if it's an arm, even if it's a loved one, if Jesus cares about you, if he's sorrow over your sorrow sorrow enough to give his own life, it changes not only your future, not only eternity, but it changes how you live and how you think and who you care for right now. Friends, consider that and take hold of Jesus. Take hold of the resurrection and be resurrected yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the resurrection for us. That you don't give us life when we have done enough, when we have changed our tomb, when we have put things in order, when we have gotten our life pure and clean. It is not then that you give us life, but it is before. And it is in spite of all of our ugliness, all of our sinfulness, all of our indiscretions. Lord, would you heal us? Would you tell us again the story of of the death and resurrection of your son so that we can participate in that, so that we can know what it means to be resurrected people. And, Lord, let this church reflect that. Let us be a church that cares for the things that you care about, that walks into the difficult places with, yes, the truth, but also with tears, with caring. And, Father, if there are those here this morning that are still looking in from the outside, peering into what it might be to believe, what it might be like, would you give them truth and tears as well? And let us be a place, let us be a center of worship that gets the gospel and gives it to others. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.